Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. It's a fun fact that when I came to D.C., I thought, like everyone else, I wanted to work in policy. Specifically, I wanted to spend my days immersed in free market environmental policy, despite my complete lack of background on it. Now, that didn't come to pass, but my interest in the issue never waned. However, perhaps like most of you listening, as important as I think environmental stewardship and preservation of natural resources might be, the debate around environmental issues these days, and for the past several decades, has just frankly been exhausting. And it's also been one where conservatives have been on their heels. The issue of climate change and questions of carbon emissions don't just rule the conversation, they drown out other important environmental issues. And the conversation is often hard for anyone not proposing giant, government-driven solutions to engage in. Today, we're going to talk to three groups working to change that narrative and that perspective. First, we'll hear from Property and Environment Research Center, or PERC, which really created the idea of free market environmentalism way back in 1980. From there, we'll learn about two newer groups, the American Conservation Coalition and Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions. All three play an important role in redefining the way those of us who care about limited government think and talk about environmental issues. As you'll hear two of our guests point out today, these issues are not going to go away anytime soon. And while small government folks may be on the defensive now, it is only through the principles of liberty and free enterprise that we can make progress. So let's jump in. The granddaddy of free market environmentalism truly is the Property and Environment Research Center, better known as PERC. PERC began in 1980 with the question of why, if the free market can so successfully make our lives better in so many ways, can it do the same for the environment? Since then, PERC is the marquee group to turn to for market solutions on the myriad of issues contained in the idea of conservation and environmental stewardship. Brian Yablonski serves as CEO of PERC and is with me to talk about the work they're doing. So Brian, PERC really developed and pioneered this entirely new framework called that we now kind of shorthand for free market environmentalism. Talk to us about that. What What is it that makes PERC's approach different than a lot of other conservation groups? Yeah, thanks, Peter, for having me. Appreciate this. Uh, you know, PERC's, a, PERC's been around a while. It's a 42-year-old conservation organization uh, that was founded by uh, outdoor-loving economists, which tells you a little bit about our history. And economists are very focused on incentives. You know, incentives matter when it comes to getting getting conservation right, which means what are the tools of incentives? Uh, Burke likes to look at leveraging markets and property rights uh, to advance conservation as opposed to the old command and control model uh, that focuses on punishing uh, to get conservation results. Uh, everybody's familiar, you know, the, the natural place for a lot of conservation organizations to go or, or government response is regulation and litigation. PERC likes to think about rewarding rather than punishing 
to get conservation outcomes. So, you know, what we like to say is how do you how do you make conservation an asset and not a liability for pe- for the people who we want to do the conserving? And we also think that conservation is most effective when it's voluntary and cooperative and actually makes economic sense for those who we want to do uh, the conserving. So that takes us into, you know, we're, we're involved in national parks policy, endangered species, wildfire and forest management, water markets, elk migrations, um, really the gambit of land, water, and wildlife issues. Yeah, it's a whole a whole scope of stuff. And in a lot of ways, per I view as a traditional think tank. I mean, you say you were founded by economists, right? Uh, you, you put out research papers. Your experts are out there talking a lot. But you also do a lot to engage kind of a wide variety of audiences and partners outside of the academic world and even beyond the liberty movement. So what can you tell us about Perk's efforts to engage that wild, broader audience? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I like to say Perk these days is more vertically integrated for folks familiar with that term. We, we started as a think tank. We were the idea generators, but we've really moved into idea generation, carrying it forward into law and policy implementation. We're, we're going to have a big announcement later this summer on our law and policy capacity. And we just hired uh, Jonathan Wood, who is a senior uh, lawyer with the Pacific Legal Foundation to work for us. Uh, to even on the ground uh, conservation work. You know, the idea is to be more outcome focused and just not have uh, papers that we're we're publishing and sitting on a bookshelf. The idea is to drive it into practice, into policy as best we can. We're the best to do that because we know the material the best. But I think a big part of that is engaging others who aren't in the ivory tower or in the echo chamber of the liberty and free market movement. And that means building partnerships with unlikely collaborators. A couple examples, uh, there's an organization out here in the West called the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, traditional environmental group, but they appreciate the role that private ranchers are playing in stewardship of elk migrations. So we are working with a ranch family and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition to create a 500-acre elk winter range area, all privately funded, you know, driven by the market, not driven by government or regulation. Uh, And the Greater Yellowstone Coalition has been a great partner of ours uh, in terms of this thinking. There's a a organization called the Tall Timbers Research Station based in North Florida. This is the, the birthplace of fire ecology, how you use fire to better manage forests. In the West, though, that culture is not as entrenched or ingrained. And so Tall Timbers reached out to us and said, you know, as we think about Western wildfires and better forest management, there are all these regulation, uh, regulatory barriers, certification barriers, litigation barriers to doing more prescribed burn in our national forests. Can you partner with us and help us sort of drive some of those policy changes, regulatory changes needed so that we can do more forest management so we can lessen the risk of wildfire? And then the third, which is kind of cool, Peter, I know you're familiar with this, is we partnered with Yellowstone, the television show, just recently this past year. Um, you know, if you watch the show, if you're a fan of the show, um, it, it is, uh, it's, it's a depiction of the West. Uh, it can be, it can be uh, you could have explosions in downtown Bozeman and things like that that might not happen every day. But they do dive into property rights and water rights issues and the impacts of endangered species on your land and stream access laws and fencing policy and 
stuff that's very real in the West and a, a chance to educate more people about some of these issues that are uh, are, are particularly uh, nuanced out here. So we had Taylor Sheridan, the creator of the show, uh, come and join us for a workshop. And Luke Grimes, who is the actor who plays Casey Dutton, spent a day with us also, you know, in a way to help. And then we did a we did a magazine, a Perk Reports on this that, uh, you know, ties some of the issues that the show covers to, to real day, everyday Western, uh, Western conservation. It is really neat. I mean, there's so many groups out there that want to find these Hollywood partnerships, and, and there you go. You did it uh, from your perch there in Bozeman. So, you know, you're not delving deep into the climate, quote-unquote, climate change issues, uh, which gets so much attention, which to me means probably some of your wins get overlooked. Talk to us about some of the big wins that may, may be getting overlooked that you all have had. Yeah. Yeah. I think a couple, couple big wins. Um, we were a finalist for the Templeton Freedom Award uh, very recently. And that was for two specific big wins that uh, Perk had helped lead on. One was some reforms to the Endangered Species Act. Uh, you know, currently the Endangered Species Act uh, has done a very good job. 99% uh, success rate in keeping species from going extinct but only a 2% success rate in recovering species. And that's in part because we need better and different incentives to actually recover species. You know, kind of the punitive model isn't going to get us there. So PERC uh, worked with the previous administration to actually do some reforms to the act that would essentially reward landowners and states with less regulation as wildlife recovered. So as wildlife were doing better, the reward would be reduced regulation. That seems kind of common sense, but it was not that way. You could you could be an endangered species and move to a threatened species, which is a, a is a better category, and still be punished with the same regulation at the end of the day. There was no reward. There was no incentive to go from endangered to threatened. So that was a big reform we got done uh, at the Department of the Interior. The other thing we did working with the administration was uh, wild horses are a big issue out west here. We've got 90,000 wild horses on our federal lands that are just pounding the habitat out here to the detriment of pronghorn and sage grouse. Uh, really, the federal rangelands can only hold about 30,000 horses, and we got the 90,000. And then we have another 50,000 horses that have been pulled off the range and put in these uh, holding facilities to the tune of $50 million annually to taxpayers just to hold these horses there. And so perk economists were looking at this issue, and they said, well, what if we incentivized adoptions, got more adoptions going. And actually, rather than um, you know spending all this taxpayer money just to hold the horses, get these horses out the door and adopt it with families. So we proposed a $1,000 incentive uh, that got put into place. Uh, the, the experts figured that adopting a horse would save taxpayers $24,000 over the life of the horse if we could get it out the door for $1,000. And so in the first year, of the adoption incentive program, there was a 92% increase in wild horse adoptions in America off federal rangelands and a savings to taxpayers of $171 million through that 92% increase. And now it's about a three-year-old program. So there's been a 230% increase in wild horse adoptions, saving taxpayers roughly uh, $413 million uh, through through a program that we were the, the lead on. So. That's real money. Yeah. It is. Even, and it's real even for government, that's real money. Yeah, and, it's, and it's a great conservation outcome, too. Um, you know, again, we're fewer horses. If we're stopping the growth of horses on the rangeland, we're helping a whole bunch of other species, uh, you know, that are being uh, hurt by overgrazing. 
so as I mentioned before, y'all are in Bozeman, Montana, uh, way up there. And I've always wondered, being in Bozeman obviously gives you serious street cred for the work you are doing. But I've also wondered if it's a hindrance to the broader impact because you're you're farther away from D.C. You're, you're not even in the state capitol. Uh, you know, you're, you're just far away from, from some of those movers and shakers. What's your sense of that? You're farther from the donors. You're farther from the legislators. Does it does it matter? Peter, clearly you don't watch the show Yellowstone. We're in the center of the universe right now. <laughs> Actually, no, it's, you know, Bozeman, I, I say that facetiously, but everybody's coming to Bozeman. Um, I don't think our founders envisioned that 40 years ago, but I can't tell you through the course of the year how many policymakers are here. Donors come out to Big Sky, the Bozeman area. Uh, conservation partners are out here. Um, we think it's a real comparative advantage to be outside of D.C. And, and New York City. We actually live these issues day in and day out. You know, if we're dealing with national parks, Yellowstone's our backyard. We're dealing with wildfires directly. We're dealing with endangered species like wolves and grizzly bears and drought. And that gives us added credibility when we do go to Washington, D.C. And when we do go to New York City, people know, like, we're just not the fixture that's down the block there that they see every week. We're the folks that are out here, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, out here on the frontier, actually seeing this firsthand. And policymakers, you know, we get to D.C. Uh, generally about, a, a, you know, every quarter we get to D.C. And we have an outstanding policy director. Her name's Hannah Downey. And policymakers generally are excited to meet with us. They clear the calendars because they want to hear the news of the world. Like what's what's happening out there? What's what's happening at reward? And we don't wear out our welcome by not being in D.C. And um, so it makes each of these engagements pretty special and pretty meaningful, just as opposed to, oh, there they are again. So that's great. Well, I'm looking forward to my first trip to Bozeman. And uh, I know you're happy to be there. And we're all glad that uh, Perk is out there doing this work. Brian, thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Peter. There is no sector of the population where calls for action around climate change and environmentalism are more prevalent than for those folks under age 30. You know, when I was in school in the 90s, the calls were for us just to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Now the message hitting younger generation is far more dire. But all is not lost. Benji Backer founded the American Conservation Coalition because he saw a two-sided problem. On the one hand, politicians, particularly on the right, running from any engagement on the climate issue. But on the other side, you had a younger generation ready to sacrifice prosperity for the sake of a new, unquestioning faith in climate catastrophe. So, Benji, what is the middle ground? What does a young conservative's approach to the environment look like? Well, first of all, it's great to be here because I think this really speaks to the core of, of what you've worked on your entire life, which is kind of the importance of economic mobility and prosperity and the American dream, but on behalf of important issues that maybe aren't seen as conservative or even pro-America, pro-economics. And, and I think that it really comes down to one thing, and that is finding solutions that are as low of a cost as possible with as high of an impact as possible. That's not how the left talks about this issue. It's sound good policies, feel good policies, for some, uh, that cost a lot and have little to no impact at all. It could be even a, a negative impact on, on the climate and the environment. And unfortunately, as conservatives, we've allowed that sort of narrative to reign supreme. And I, and I compare it to Obamacare 
in, in certain ways where Obamacare was was bad and we you know hammered on him all the time, but then we didn't really have an alternative solution. And the reality is young people want <laughs> solutions on climate change and the environment, which they put together as the same thing, by the way. So if you care about the environment, which every conservative does, just know that uh, climate change and the environment is the same to young people. When you're a young person, you care about that. And all you hear about is this kind of doom and gloom, big government approach. Then you're not thinking about how capitalism and innovation and entrepreneurship can solve the issue. You're only thinking regulations and federal, if not international policy. That's interesting. That that combination of the issue itself and the environmentalism kind of writ large, all it is, you're right. You're right. It is just one thing. They're not looking at the things that like Perk, uh, who we're talking to as well, uh, talk about, or some of those sustainability things. It's all just of a piece. So, so talk to me about the approach that you all are taking. How are you educating both sides of the equation on this? Absolutely. The good news is that uh, there are a lot of persuadable young people on the issue. Most young people have not chosen a political affiliation yet and actually distrust the government more than any other entity or person or, or anything, even if they are liberal. So there's a huge opportunity here. So what we talk about is, is how we can build a positive future and solve environmental and climate challenges at the same time. What I mean by that is whether or not you believe climate change is an existential threat, you know that if we're going to lower carbon emissions, which I think everyone can get behind, then we are going to need a lot more innovation. We're going to need a lot more technology. We're going to need a lot more entrepreneurs. And that's a very compelling message to young people who are innovative and, and want to be entrepreneurs. There's an innovation gap that exists. And we as Americans should lead that instead of allowing you know, countries like China uh, or Europe to, to dominate that instead. So that's a very compelling message. And it's something that we talk a lot about. We're going to, we're going to be releasing a kind of framework and approach. It's not going to be a one size fits all solution because that doesn't exist, but we'll be, we'll be putting together sort of a framework approach that will be an alternative to the green new deal that people can support that has those pillars behind it, that innovation entrepreneurship approach. But then it's also about effectiveness and balance. The government doesn't have to be involved in every decision uh, at the federal level, the state level, or the local level. In fact, there's a lot of times where the federal government has been getting in the way. How can we have a balanced system where if people want to innovate, they can innovate. If people want to create some sort of really cool nuclear energy technology, that they're not held back by the government. So those are the types of things that we're going to be promoting. And it really resonates with young people because it's hopeful and positive, but it also shows that they can use their own voice in the private sector for good. You know, we hear a lot about speakers on the right being canceled and run off campuses. And you're doing a lot of work on campuses, but you're out there uh, with the kind of unorthodox, shall we say, maybe heretical view around climate. How are you able to not get yourself kicked out? I'll be honest, I think that it's one thing and it comes down to my authenticity. I, at, at my core, I'm an environmental lover. I, I love being outside. You know, I love hiking. I love fishing. I love skiing. Uh, those are some of my favorite activities. And that shines through because it's like why I'm doing this in the first place. I just happen to also believe in conservative values and I have been active in it my whole life. So people understand that. And when you acknowledge that these issues are real and that you actually want to do something about them, 
people put down walls and barriers that you didn't even realize you could bring down. I mean, I went to college at the University of Washington in Seattle, one of the most liberal campuses in the country. But people would be so happy to hear that I was a conservative or a right of center person who cared about the climate and the environment. And it was basically like, you know, all 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 bets were off. They could actually listen to me. It was like saying that I was a good person and they didn't think that I was. And so it, it's a really unique place to, to be. Um, but it also shows that we can persuade people that might not have this positive view of conservatism or of free markets or of a capitalist system, because it's an issue that's at, at its core about humanity and a moral imperative to leave this world a better place than we found it. That's just something that most people can get behind. And if you show that you care too, it opens up some doors. I think that's right. I think that willing to speak openly, honestly, uh, but also not hide who you are is something that you know, maybe we don't have enough of. So if I can just jump in really quickly there, we had a poll that came out, but this is also confirmed in all my travels because I've been going around to pretty much every state trying to figure out kind of how people are thinking about this. Young people don't think of this as a political issue. In fact, they hate it as a political issue. And I'm not just talking about young liberals and independents. I'm talking about young Republicans. This isn't about right versus left. It's about solving the, the problems that exist with our environment and plastic pollution water pollution, air pollution, climate change, they all go hand in hand. To those people who think that way, which include me, it's not about the politics. And so if you can show that you actually genuinely care and that you're out there to solve the problem, and oh, by the way, our solutions do work better than the left's, that's a winning winning argument. Now, we've talked a lot about your engagement with the students. That's obviously a big piece of what you do, but you are also talking to a lot of people on the Hill, uh, state legislators, a lot of, you know, the, the older generation, shall we say. And I'm sure you run run up against people who are hostile to your efforts or at least just, just don't want to deal with it. Uh, and so I'm curious, is there an argument that you can make successfully about caring for environment writ large and being able to actually talk about it, debate in it, engage in it uh, when you run up against those people that actually works and gets some traction? Yes. Well, first of all, it's acknowledging the fact that the left and and the media have co-opted this issue to make it divisive. And they've made it so that the word climate and environmentalist, which used to not be polarizing terms, are now very polarizing. And people who consider themselves environmentalists in the past or maybe would have gotten on board with doing something about climate change in the past don't want to because it's inherently a left wing issue. So I acknowledge that. and, And that really seems to resonate with people. But then the second thing is, there's two reasons why people should care that usually work when it comes to, to talking about this. One is the political imperative that we have to solve it. I mean, the, the left has co-opted this issue to the point where even young Republicans are favoring like a Green New Deal approach because it's the only thing they've ever heard of. We're losing so many people uh, in younger generations because of this. And millennials aren't so young anymore. Uh, they're, you know, they're having kids and, and they're in their thir- late 30s. Um, so there's there's a lot of opportunity to, to win over voters that we've lost, but also it is our imperative to have clean air and clean water. And whether that's for climate change or for just loving the environment, it accomplishes the same dang thing. And we need to just stop being so worried about the, the words climate change and more worried about the actual 
ideas and results that we're trying to get, which end up being about the same thing. So again, we don't have to engage on this as a left-leaning issue, and we can actually have our own approach. But even if you don't like the words and the language, there's an imperative politically and environmentally for us to have our ideas on the table. So to kind of wrap it up, what does winning look like for American Conservation Coalition? Where do you hope we'll be when we're talking about the environment in five to 10 years? First of all, I would love to have conservatives and libertarians be the champions of climate and environmental issues, and that be a definition that people think of instead of thinking climate and environmental deniers, that the culture is that actually conservatives and libertarians were the ones who fixed a lot of these environmental issues, that that's a cultural and policy uh, association. And then next, that if you are interested in the environment and the climate, which is not going to go away for future generations, that you don't just think of the left, you actually think of the conservative solutions that we've been putting on the table, that a young person who cares starts to get involved. And those are harder things to to track over decades, but we're doing things to track that. We have chapters across the country that we're launching uh, in tons of communities. We have policies that we're pushing for. Uh, you know, we have tons of cultural media going out there and, and tracking kind of the reactions to that. So I think we can get there. But basically what that comes down to is we need to take this issue back and looking, looking you know, back in history a few decades from now, hopefully say, wow, you know, we were successful at getting the right of center to be the champions publicly and in terms of policy, and, and we took the issue back. You know, what you said about this being a long game, I think is exactly right. And so we we have to be in it for the long way and be willing to have those conversations, no matter what we really think about the issue. It's it's going to be part of the ethos, no matter what. It will so. never go away. It'll never go away. And people aren't going to stop loving the planet that we live on, and nor should they. Uh, and, and they need to associate results and environmental protection with Republicans, conservatives, libertarians, right of center thinking, free markets, whatever, or we're going to lose on the policy field and, uh, and, and much more. Benji Backer, American Conservation Coalition. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. So what happens when a couple of seasoned Hill staffers who worked for hardcore conservative members get together to start an organization focused on environmental issues? Well, it isn't what the common narrative would suggest. When Drew Bond and John Hart formed Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions in 2020, they started with the premise that it was possible to be both conservative and concerned about protecting our natural and economic environment. Drew Bond, president of C3 Solutions, as they're more commonly known, joins me today. So, Drew, there's a lot of conservative groups out there that you might say have an environmental focus, but a lot of them spend a lot of time on energy issues. You guys have climate right there in your name, so clearly you're tapped into the broader conversation that's out there. So what is your goal with C3 Solutions? Yeah, so, Peter, first off, thanks for having me on the on the show. And... Um... You know, look, as you said, we've got uh, John and I and even you know now Nick Loris, who's our vice president of public policy, who had been at Heritage for 12 years. And, you know, Nick and I served at Heritage at different times when when I was chief of staff and he was he was there uh, separately. Um, you know, we for, for a long time had, had recognized that conservatives were losing on the issue of climate and mainly because we we're not engaging on the issue. We were unwilling to talk about solutions for fear that it was an issue that was being used by the left 
to promote big government socialism, to put it bluntly. You know, we and many conservatives probably weren't wrong about that. Um, we, we, where, where I think we were missing is uh, that you can, you can recognize that climate is an issue without buying into the kind of hyper, you know, extreme language and the religion of that issue. And, and then also recognize that like the fundamental solutions to solving for climate change are actually based on conservative principles. They're free market oriented. It's innovation. It is all things, um, you know, energy and energy innovation and natural climate solutions. So, you know, to your point, the reason we put climate in our name is because we wanted to take the bull by the horns and instead of running from the issue, we wanted to run to it. And we've seen what happens when Republicans and conservatives and free market libertarians don't put forward solutions. Well, we lose on those issues, a.k.a. Obamacare. Right. So um, we just felt like, look, we've, we've got to stop fighting about the science per se. And, uh, you know, happy to talk about that. But but where the real battlefield is, is on the solutions. And when you look at what the free markets can provide versus what government can provide, free markets actually have, as we know, a much better, um, you know, a much better chance of, of serving up any kind of real solutions for climate, energy and the environment. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, you just can't talk about energy or the environment or you can't buy a car or go to the grocery store without hearing about someone talk about or have see some label related to climate and so climate really has become this all-encompassing term for what includes you know sustainability energy environment um you know even you know how we go about our daily lives and so we just decided to again take the bull by the horns on that and say look we're we're conservative we care about the climate. We're focused on solutions. And, and you don't have to be any less conservative to do that. And in fact, it's those conservative principles that, again, will deliver the best results. And I saw a quote from you in a November Forbes piece that was exploring whether the private sector or government should really be taking the lead in advancing a lot of the environmental sustainable solutions out there. And you, as you already mentioned, uh, are in that private sector camp like me, like a lot of people listening so how do we better make that case in this current environment that, you know, at a minimum is, at least in the mainstream, is hostile to the idea of private solutions actually being the way out of this? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And, um, you know, I'm sad to say that, you know, it seems that free markets and capitalism are not in vogue as much as they used to be. Uh, they're certainly under attack uh, in terms of, you know, any support for them from a public perception standpoint when in reality, we know that capitalism is good. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think a, a couple of things to your question, how do we address that? I think one is to recognize that while it's true that the, the private sector should be leading and is leading, right? The government does in fact have a role. So, so when we talk about free market solutions, we don't mean no government involvement whatsoever. We simply mean there is a limited role for government. And so what is that proper limited role? The role is for government to invest in early stage R&D and the, and the role for government is to, you know, perhaps uh, help uh, demonstrate first of a kind, you know, new, you know, large scale technologies. Um, but then by and large, the goal for the government is to get out of the way. 
And oftentimes it's those, you know, environmental policies that actually get in the way of environmental progress. You know, again, part of that is recognizing that this is not a binary choice between government and markets. It's actually the governments and markets working together in a proper balance, but recognizing that the private sector has to lead and it, and it is in fact leading. I mean, there's for 2021, I think the number was almost $2 trillion of private capital was invested around the world in energy. So that's just energy that doesn't include you know all the other you know various climate technologies so um and and we've seen you know from history and even more recently i mean folks have probably heard this story again and again and again but it's one that we shouldn't forget is you know it was it was in, innovation led by the private sector but supported by government r d funds that led to the natural gas fracking revolution Right. And the United States went from becoming a, a net energy importer to a net energy exporter because of private sector innovation, working with the government. But again, the government had a very limited role in that. I mean, it, it invested in the Department of Energy invested in early stage technology for years related to you know digging uh, deeper holes for natural gas wells it, at times when economically it just didn't make sense. But there was also a man named George Mitchell, who was, you know, frankly, hellbent on, you know, bringing this technology to the market. He was persistent and dogged to get it done. And then at the time that the market was ripe, he was able to, you know, really bring this this technology to the market. And and now, you know, we've he's completely changed the game of energy globally. And that was that's where I would say that's private sector leadership. So we're seeing that private sector leadership, that kind of leadership, all over the map. And uh, you know, I, I could I could point you to solution after solution after solution uh, for your listeners. I would encourage them to go to our news magazine. We have a news magazine. It's just at c3newsmag.com. There is we will what we do is actually aggregate content from across the web and highlight examples of companies and innovators and entrepreneurs that are actually solving real problems. You know, we know how politically charged this whole conversation is, not just across the aisle, but on our own side of the aisle. And I have to believe you've gotten grief from conservatives for working on a quote unquote progressive issue. So what's your response to that kind of criticism? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We, uh, when we started the organization before we did, we actually being, you know, free market people, we went and, and did our own market survey and, uh, we went and talked to you know, about two dozen of our close, you know, conservative allies. Um, none of them said we were crazy. Uh, they probably were skeptical and wondered, you know, has, has have Drew and John uh, become less conservative? I think over time we've proven that um, we're no less conservative than, than we were, you know, when I was chief of staff at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I think, you know, part of it is we've got the conservative qualifications uh, that we bring and the long history of having worked in those circles. Part of it is that we back it up with policies uh, that are free market oriented. Uh, we've, you know, for instance, you know, signed the, the no carbon tax pledge uh, that Grover Norquist has. Uh, and then, you know, in every policy that we're putting forward, we are looking to, you know, what is the market's role and how can the market best, um, you know, scale innovation and how can we limit the size of government in doing so? And there I'll say, you know, what what's interesting and, and I hope my, you know, conservative free market libertarian friends, you know, really hear me on this is that. I know that in the past, the concern was that this was a stalking horse for their, you know, for socialism. But but we can actually flip the script on the left on this. And I'm I'm 
dead serious about this and that if you look at the history of the data right and and we've seen we've done this and you can see this at at our uh, news magazine or on our website um, there is a study that we c3 uh, did um, that actually took the data from the heritage foundation's index of economic freedom and yale university's environmental performance index and when you put those two sets of data together, you actually show that economic freedom leads to a cleaner environment. And not just by a little bit, by twice. So free economies are twice as clean as unfree economies. So if you really care about climate, you should actually be expanding economic freedom around the world, not constricting it. So again, this is really, I mean, an incredible opportunity, I think, for this generation and the, and the coming generations to say, look, Climate's real, we know it, but the sky's not falling, right? And and we can solve in terms of reducing our impact on the environment. And the way that we do that is by embracing free market principles and economic freedom around the world. And and it has to be around the world. I mean, you know, climate is a global challenge, right? And so if the United States were to reduce our carbon emissions to zero today, it's not going to have a big impact because of what China and Russia and other countries are doing. So so what we need to be able to do is to take this opportunity to really innovate faster and better than anybody else and to export that innovation um, around the world to our allies, uh, as well as ensure that we have you know, security for ourselves. Um, because you know, what we're seeing right now in Ukraine, what we've seen happen prior to that with Germany's policies, uh, embracing you know, solar with massive subsidies when it just doesn't make sense. I mean, that put them into a very vulnerable uh, energy security position, and that's not where we want to be. And so, you know, again, I, I think this is an opportunity for conservatives, whether you care about the climate, whether you care about energy security, whether you care about economic competitiveness, you name it. I mean, those are all reasons why the United States ought to be the one leading on these innovations and ensuring that we have a, you know, a secure, robust, diverse uh, you know, system of energy, and also that we can export that to our allies. So kind of a lightning round question to close this out. So you're American emperor for a day, you can pass any environmental legislation you want. What would you pass that would actually both be pleasing to conservatives and make an honest climate activist happy? I would pass reforms to the National Environmental Protection Act, otherwise known as NEPA. Uh, this was a law that was passed in 1970, so it's as old as I am. It hasn't been reformed since then. And the environmental left holds onto it like a third rail in terms of you may not touch it, otherwise you would die. And the reality is what, what's happening is NEPA, is, what the impact of that law is, is having on our ability to deploy clean energy or any form of energy here in the United States faster, uh, NEPA absolutely gets in the way of that. So we could, it may take us seven to 10 years to deploy a nuclear power plant in the United States or a pipeline, uh, whereas some other country could do it in one or two years. And so that's a, that's a real problem. And you know we issued a statement about this just yesterday because the Biden administration has come out. They're reversing some regulations related to NEPA that Trump uh, administration had put into place. Um, you know, there ought to be a, a strict time clock so that when you start a project, it gets reviewed in, from an environmental perspective. And one year later, you ought to have a yes or a no, and it ought to be based on something sound and, and you know, backable. Uh, 
and the government and the environmental extremists should not be able to to you know extend that time frame out for 10 years that's just ridiculous so i mean you you just can't you cannot deploy oil and natural gas renewables you know solar wind nuclear can't mine here in the united states like all of that gets wound up into nepa and so we really need to reform nepa not the ex- answer I was expecting, but <laughs> I can understand why it makes sense. You remove that, you remove a lot of barriers to the things that that the other side wants, et cetera. That, that makes perfect sense. So, well, Drew Bond, really appreciate you joining us today and uh, telling us about C3. Yeah, Peter, thanks so much. And uh, I just uh, appreciate your donors and uh, hope that will certainly give us uh, an opportunity to, to continue our good work. Do you feel a little more hopeful after hearing from Ryan, Benji, and Drew? I do. Now, did you also notice that Benji and Drew drew a comparison to the Obamacare fight that both expanded government and failed to radically improve healthcare in America? If liberty-minded folks don't engage in the debate around climate and environmental issues, and if we don't bring forth the value of incentives and property rights and innovation then we may end up facing far worse consequences than we did in losing that Obamacare fight. We can succeed. Did you hear how many hundreds of millions of dollars have been saved thanks to reforms around an issue that none of us are really paying attention to, this wild horses issue that Perk brought forth? You know, maybe one of the most pithy quotes for the power of these ideas of liberty came in the final season of West Wing, that TV show many of you may have watched, when a wildly liberal Alan Alda really proved his acting chops by playing a really strong conservative. In the show's presidential debate, Alda's character says, quote, government didn't make the Prius the best-selling car in America. The market did that, end quote. Indeed, the market can do a lot for us, and improving energy and the environment is no exception. At Donors Trust, we have a wide variety of clients who come down on all of the aspects of this climate debate and on issues of environmental stewardship. We ought to argue over the problems we see, and we also need our voices heard when it comes to solutions and changes. Thank you to everyone listening who supports these issues. Now, if you'd like to know other groups taking part in this debate around environment, we are more than happy to talk to you about that. I'd also love to know what you thought of this episode or any other episode. Email me at tellmemore at donorstrust.org with your thoughts. And also, would you please subscribe to the show? Then you'll get it automatically when we drop our twice-monthly episode as soon as they come out on the second and fourth Tuesday of the month. Well, thank you for being a giver. Thank you for listening. And let's talk more soon. (laughs) 